He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus, even so we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, indeed, we are grateful to be here. We are grateful for your grace, your goodness, your love toward us, all that you have provided for us, and especially that you have given us your word, for it is through your word that we come to know who you are by your acts in history and by the explanation and examples we are given of your uh, love, your power, your care for your creatures, and your especially your care for believers. Father, we are thankful that we have your word, but above all, we have God the Holy Spirit who indwells us, and he is the one who fills us with your word, who enables us to understand all of its dimensions and all that it means and constantly uses that to bring us into a closer walk with you, coming to understand who you are and what you have done in richer ways as each year goes by. We thank you for your word, and we pray that as we study today that you will continue to open our minds to what it means and to how it should be applied in our own thinking and in our own understanding. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Now, what we have seen in our study of these, this second section in Ephesians 1, starting in, in verse 15 and going down through verse 23, is that this is a second major, long, complex sentence. It is a prayer. And as I keep reminding us as we go through these prayers of Paul, that they are patterns for us on what our priorities in prayer should be. How should we pray and what should we be praying for? Somehow we need to get out of our own uh, little uh, insulated life where we're focusing on all of the immediate distractions and details of life and problems that we face and get out of these secondary tertiary issues and get to the primary ones in terms of our focus on our spiritual life. And to that end, we are taking some time to understand this, this particular uh, prayer that uh, Paul has here. And it's these prayers of Paul, he, he must have had a, a, an extensive 
list. Uh, he probably had it all memorized because of his uh, background and training as a pharisaical rabbi. He would have had an uh, incredible ability to remember and memorize things. But he had this list of every church he went to, all of the people that he had met, and he's praying for them and their individual uh, needs over and over again. And so he talks about this in verse 16, he, that he doesn't cease to give thanks for the Ephesian believers, making mention of them in his prayers. And then he introduces us to the content of his prayers that we have seen. And this he emphasizes by the use of the word that here in 117, which is different from the that which we'll get to next week in verse 18, the content of the prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, or as we saw last night, the glorious Father emphasizing the glory of God, may give to you the spirit of wisdom. And as we'll see today, that should be an uppercase spirit. The spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding having already been enlightened, that you may know three things, what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Now, last time we looked at the first part of 117. Two lessons ago in Lesson 40, I talked about the fact that there are some significant interpretational problems in these uh, two or three verses. And so we started at the end, and we worked backwards just to get that framework. And now I'm spending time going through this in a, a forward so we really understand what this means and what its implications for our spiritual life are and what its application should be. So last time we looked at the opening statement, uh, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Two things are emphasized there. One is the that God is the God of Jesus Christ. This emphasizes his humanity, his subordinate relation in hypostatic union, his subordinate relation as as the Son of God. Uh, as a man, he is sub, uh, submissive to the authority of the Father. And so this emphasizes the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, during his ministry on earth. And in fact, he is subordinate to the authority of the Father through all eternity. There's an authority relationship within uh, the Godhead. And that's important to understand because we have lived in a world for the last 60 years that has great problems with authority, especially in American pop culture, tremendous problems with authority, and they think that somehow authority is bad. Authority is not bad. It's inherent to the, to the Godhead, and it has always been there. That was something God established in the perfect environment of the Garden of Eden because it provides order and structure and and the ability to accomplish the goals uh, of God. What happens is because of sin, authority gets distorted and abused and corrupted. But authority in and of itself is is not evil, is not wrong, and it not, does not distort the significance of those who are under authority from those who are over authority. The second part talked about the glory of the Father, and that he is a glorious father. We looked at Isaiah chapter 6 as we were uh, talking about that. And today we're going to look at this second part. But to remind you, last week we focused on Isaiah 6 
And this is when Isaiah is given this incredible vision uh, where he, and, and it's not, really not a vision, he sees, he's in the temple and he sees directly into the throne of God. And he sees the angels, specifically the seraphim, but, but the throne of God in every, everywhere we see it depicted emphasizes the myriads and myriads of angels that surround the throne of God. And here it's specifically talking about that which the seraph, seraphim are singing, focusing on the uniqueness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So these two words, glory and holiness, are foundational to understanding a, a lot of what is here in Ephesians Ephesians 1. These are words that are really common in church uh, settings, and it's not so common when we are outside of church settings. So if you're a new believer, how the Bible uses these words glory and holy uh, may seem kind of strange to you, and that's why I'm taking, I've taken time to teach on these. Holy is a word that emphasizes the uniqueness, the distinctiveness of God, the fact that he is special, he's one of a kind. And last time we went through a number of passages emphasizing the uniqueness of God, that he is God alone, and there is none like him. The word glory emphasizes something that is important. Its literal meaning is something that is heavy or something weighty, and that comes to mean something that is very significant, very important, and that focuses on uh, God. He is significant. He's more important than anything else in his, anything in his creation. And because of that, he is to be valued and treasured and he is to be the priority of our life. Glory also comes to be applied to his entire essence because it is who God is, his essence, his attributes that make him special, that make him holy. He is distinct in all of those attributes. And this is his his glory. And we finished there last time, but in John twelve forty one, there is a reference to this as Jesus is speaking, and he says, um, or rather John is speaking here and said, these things that is related to what Jesus had just quoted from Isaiah, uh, specifically Isaiah 6, these things Isaiah said when he saw his glory, and spoke of him. So the glory of God is used in a different sense here because along with his essence, his attributes and everything, there is this, this physical manifestation of his glory, the splendor, the light of his glory and his presence. And this is what overwhelmed Isaiah in that particular uh, vision. So Paul speaks of this. With his whole training in the Old Testament, he would have thought constantly about Isaiah 6 and the glorious splendor of the Father. So he begins, what he's praying about is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, identifying him as the Father, God the Father, the Father of glory, or the glorious Father. And then we get a difficult passage, a difficult uh, clause to understand that he may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of 
him. And then we'll see that the connection to the next verse is equally difficult to understand what that connection is, and it is translated in in the New King James, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. And I pointed out two weeks ago that in the NIV they completely mishandle it, and they say that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened. And we'll see that that's erroneous because the grammar there uses a perfect tense uh, participle, which indicates past completed action that emphasizes the ongoing results of that past completed action so that we have already had the eyes of our uh, understanding open. But what does it mean when we come to this phrase, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, in the knowledge of him. There are two ways in which this is understood and interpreted, and you will find both of them as you read through your Bible, as I hope you're doing on a regular basis, and you come to this, and maybe you ask a question, what does this describe, and you look in the notes of your study Bible, and you may see, you will see one of two basic basic approaches to this. The first is that this is talking about spiritual wisdom, and revelation. And in this case, what is generally interpreted to mean is that Paul is praying that we have a disposition toward wisdom and revelation. In other words, the word spirit there speaks of an attitude or a disposition, a way of thinking, and that we are uh, receptive to wisdom and revelation. And the second way is that this spirit is not talking about a lowercase spirit. It's not talking about an attitude uh, or a uh, an attitude or a a disposition or uh, the human spirit, but it is talking about God, the Holy Spirit. The word that is translated spirit is the word pneuma. We get uh, if you've got pneumonia. That's based on the Greek word pneuma. If you know what a, a pneumatic drill is, it's drill, it works on the power of air. That's the, from this Greek word pneuma. And it has a wide range of meanings. Uh, it, it means it could be translated maybe 14 or 15 different ways in ways that really don't have anything to do with each other. For example, its basic meaning is the idea of air, something you neither see nor feel uh, except if it's blowing. And then it, it, uh, pneuma refers to wind. It can refer to breath. It can refer to that immaterial part of man that uh, that is that which gives him life. And so that comes to mean spirit in that sense. And so it, is, it refers to the life spirit in a person. It is also applied to the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. And it can refer to an attitude or a mentality, a mindset, a mental attitude or disposition. It can refer to an immaterial part of man's nature that... Uh, is that which we lost in spiritual death and we gain in regeneration. And it can also refer to an angel, an immaterial being. It can refer to an angel. 
a holy angel or an evil angel or a demon. Sometimes we read in the Scripture an evil spirit. It's that same word. So when we come to any text, and we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 2, which is also very complicated because of the many different ways in which pneuma is used there, we have to think very logically and precisely and work through the process and exclude that which doesn't work so that we can arrive at that which does work. And so part of the issue is just how the idiom of Greek would have been used to express this, and sometimes that's difficult to bring over and express into English. So I'll have sort of a paraphrase of that when we get to that. So this is a word spirit. So it's applied to wisdom, and it's applied to revelation. So however you take it in relation to wisdom must be the same way that you take it in its uh, relation to revelation. Now, if you talk about the spirit of wisdom and you say that, well, that's easy to understand, that is an attitude or a disposition toward wisdom, that makes sense. And the way some people want to translate it, it would make sense that we're talking about an attitude or disposition toward revelation. Now, that's where it gets to be a sticky wicket because the word revelation is used very specifically in the New Testament. And so we have to start there because in doing so, we will eliminate the possibility that this refers to a mental attitude or a disposition. It is the Greek word apocalypsis. Whenever you hear something apocalyptic, and every now and then you'll read different media accounts that something happens and it just has apocalyptic nuances. Well, there they're applying that because the word apocalypsis is the title for the last book in the New Testament, the revelation of Jesus Christ to John the Apostle. And that's the meaning of the word apocalypsis is revelation, but because the last book of the Bible is called the Revelation, then, and it has all of these details about the final battles of Armageddon and the end of human history, apocalyptic has come to be applied to that which looks to some future uh, events in the course of mankind that leads to possibly his destruction. But the meaning of apocalypsis is revelation. Revelation means to unveil or to disclose something to those who don't know it. It is the disclosing of information. Now, in the Bible, only God discloses. Man does not disclose. The human spirit is not is not invested with the ability to reveal, that is, reveal the information that is in Scripture. That's not the role of the human spirit. It's not the role of mankind. It's not uh, what his mental disposition should be. And so that pretty much eliminates this as a possibility, since revelation means the disclosing of information to us by God, Only God can perform this act. Therefore, the pneuma here, the Spirit, should be capitalized and understood as the Holy Spirit, and that these two words, wisdom and revelation, are describing the basic characteristic of the Holy Spirit's ministry 
as his function as the Trinity. God the Father is the one who is in charge. He is the planner. He is the architect. Uh, God the Son is the one who carries out the plan. He is the, as it were, the uh, building supervisor uh, over creation. He is the one who carries out the work of redemption. And it is God the Holy Spirit who is in charge of revelation. He is the one, uh, First, our Second Peter 1, 20 and 21 tells us that, that the prophets of old were moved by God the Holy Spirit. He is the one whose specific uh, area of responsibility is in this area of revelation and preservation of the Scripture. So we see that this is better understood to be a capital S, Spirit. The word for wisdom is the Greek word uh, Sophia. And it, we were tempted, because this is in Greek, and this was uh, <coughs> written to those with a Greek background to interpret this in terms of Greek wisdom. Now, there are times that it is used that way in terms of Greek philosophies. We'll see in our brief look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 this morning. But it really conveys more the idea of the Old Testament word chokhmah, which means skill. It can refer to the skill of a craftsman, the skill of a carpenter, skill of a jeweler. It can refer to someone who is skillful in the way that they live their life. They are skillful in their decision-making. And so this is the idea that comes across with the Greek word Sophia. It emphasizes skill, and biblically speaking, that is the skill at living that comes as a result of a study of the word and application of that in our in our lives. Now, having said all of that, I want to look at this idea of how spirit should be translated a little more. It is translated as an attitude or disposition in a number of places. For example, it's used in the phrase spirit of gentleness in 1 Corinthians 4.21, uh, spirit of bondage in Romans 8.15, spirit of stupor in Romans 11.8, Spirit of meekness in Galatians 6, 1, and spirit of timidity in 2 Timothy 1, 7. Each of these is, follows the same grammatical pattern, uh, as the other. Okay? So they're just like the grammatical pattern that we have here in, in, uh, Ephesians 1, 1, 17. Uh, and they refer to an attitude or a mentality someone who is gentle, they have a spirit of gentleness, not talking about a spirit. There are some that take this as referring to an angel or a demon, those who have a spirit of bitterness that would say that they're somehow plagued by an evil spirit or demon who makes them bitter. That is not what it means at all. It's just an idiom for talking about somebody who is uh, wise or meek or timid, and that's how it comes across. But if this is the way, and a lot of people take it this way. I mean, a lot of Greek scholars take it this way. Uh, Dan Wallace, who's one, a foremost grammarian and has an advanced grammar he's published and is well-respected, takes it this way. I think he's wrong. I've analyzed all of his arguments. and But this is very popular. And a couple of weeks ago when I went through this, 
Uh, I talked about, I give an example of Dr. Harold Honer, who was the, who was Dan's boss, the head of the Greek department at Dallas Seminary, and how he took it as a spirit, an attitude of wisdom and a, and an uh, openness to revelation, uh, disposition, a positive disposition toward revelation when he wrote his commentary on Ephesians and the Bible Knowledge Commentary, but 20 years after that, when he wrote his massive volume on F, on Ephesians, he reversed course and said, no, that's, that's not right. And that's typical of any of us that we learn and we grow and we mature. And he gives a list of reasons. And I've just, I don't want to drill down too much on this, but it's important and it leads to uh, something we need to talk about in relation to this. And so there's four basic exegetical reasons why we must understand this to be the Holy Spirit. The first is one I've covered already, and that is that the concept of revelation or disclosure of God's Word is understood as revealing information that is uh, described in Ephesians, uh, or the whole epistle of Ephesians, as the mysteries of God that's previously unrevealed information. And so this fits with the emphasis that we find in the epistle of, of of the Ephesians is that this is written to disclose information. And so Paul is not saying that they might be given the Holy Spirit. He knows they already have the Holy Spirit. They're already saved. But that in relation to the knowledge of God and the knowledge of these mysteries, that, that they be particularly receptive to the Holy Spirit's ministry to them in this area of spiritual growth. Second, and this is, also important is that understanding from Revelation, as I've uh, mentioned already, God the Holy Spirit reveals, the human spirit does not reveal. The basic meaning of apocalypsis, as we see in Scripture, always refers to God doing the revealing. And that leads to the third point, that whenever you have the word pneuma, whether it, it ha- sometimes it has the word holy with it, which makes it very clear it's the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's just pneuma alone. Whenever you have that word in the New Testament, and it is in connection with the verb give, it always refers to the Holy Spirit, every time. That's what you call really sound exegetical information. Every time it's used, it all with the word give, it always refers to the Holy Spirit every other place. So here's three examples. There's about eight examples in the in the New Testament. John three thirty four says, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the spirit see there you have the verb give and then spirit. God does not give the words give the spirit by measure. Acts 8.18. Now, what's important about John 3.34 is that spirit doesn't have the word holy with it, but it's clearly understood from the context. Uh, Acts 8.18, and when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. This is talking about Simon Magus. So here you have the verb given, and the uh, that which is given is the Holy Spirit. And then a third example from 1 John 3.24, again, it doesn't use the word holy in modifying spirit, but it's clear that that's who is being talked about. Now, he who keeps his command, commandments abides in him, and he 
in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So, see, you just go to usage and grammatical constructions and parallels, and you can pretty much resolve the question. The fourth example is that this is parallel to Paul's lengthy explanation of the Holy Spirit's role in revealing wisdom and knowledge in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16. This is a long passage. We're just going to really fly by it this morning, but we need to look at it because this sets a, a precedent. I mean, where Paul really explains this is in that passage. And it is, the word wisdom is central to that passage. And so using one of the uh, Bible study applications that I have, Accordance has a little whiz-bang tool that you can click on, and it gives you nice little charts and analytics of, of words and where they're used and their frequency of use and all kinds of other information. And so I took some pictures of that, and the top one is hard for you to see, but what you can see clearly, it starts over on the far left with Matthew and goes down through the end of the New Testament, and you can see that there are really small little blips here or there where you have the word used one or two times, but there's this huge spike right in the middle, and that's in 1 Corinthians 2 and 3. And so I blew that up a little more in the bottom chart so that you can see that that of all the New Testament, there's just this intensive, repetitive use of the word wisdom right here in in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and 3. So that is where you need to go to get an understanding of the wisdom that Paul is talking about and the role of God the Holy Spirit in disclosing wisdom. Now, if we look at the first part of 1 Corinthians 2. So turn with me there to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And we see that he's con- Paul is continuing a discussion from earlier in chapter 1 where he's contrasting the wisdom of man, the Greek philosophy, with the wisdom of God. And we usually refer to the wisdom of man as human viewpoint thinking, doesn't mean it's stupid, it's just not right. And then we have the divine viewpoint, what Scripture presents, a unified view of God from Genesis to Revelation on all things, and that this is revealed to us in the Scripture by God the Holy Spirit. So the problem they had in Corinth was that they were emphasizing uh, the, the wisdom they had in their Greek intellectual tradition and so they were they they were uh, arrogant in their own knowledge and the traditions of their culture and their history, and they are not giving that up to replace it with the wisdom of God. And so, in this section from the middle of chapter one uh, down through the end of chapter two, you have this emphasis, this contrast: the wisdom of man or the wisdom of God. And so just to give us a little context, I put 1 Corinthians 2, 5 through 7 up here on the screen, where Paul says that your faith should not be in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. Now, you're going to have to hold on to that for about two or three weeks. We may come back to it next week. But remember when we get into the three-part content of this prayer, that the third part is related to uh, knowing the and experiencing the power 
of God in our life. I talked about this Thursday night, the power of God. He is all-powerful, his, his omniscience, and he is able to tell us how to handle every problem and to give us the strength to endure and to face any problem, difficulty, circumstance in life, and that the information for handling that is in his word. So the faith should not be in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. The object of faith is God his person, and what he has revealed. However, he says, we, meaning the apostles, speak wisdom among those who are mature. What he means by that is immature Christians often do not recognize or are willing to accept the wisdom of Scripture because they haven't built enough of a frame of reference to really understand what Scripture says. A lot of people have a very superficial view of Scripture, and they read it two or three times. They say, I don't understand it, and therefore I don't see how any of that applies to me. Well, God has given us the word the way he's given it, so it forces us to study it, to study, to come back. It's it's not a simple thing. There are parts of it that are easy to understand and are simple, but it is something that we need to spend our lives, and yes, guess what? You'll be spending a lot of eternity probing into the depths of God's Word because, as Paul says at the end of this chapter, this is the mind of Christ. So we're never going to stop learning. If you don't like learning, you might have a problem in heaven. Fortunately, you won't have a sin nature, so if you don't like learning now, you'll love it in heaven. But Paul says, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age. See that contrast, not the wisdom of this age, which is compared to the wisdom of men, nor is it the wisdom of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. You can go and get all the degrees you want at all of the advanced, respected institutions of higher learning in the, in the world today and are in the world of 200 years ago, and it will not matter to anything in terms of the wisdom of God. For the wisdom of God comes from his omniscience, and the wisdom of man comes from their guessing games in terms of experience and rationalism. And so in verse uh, 7 he says, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Now, that doesn't mean a mystery like a murder mystery or... Uh, something like that that you're trying to solve a riddle, but it refers to previously unrevealed revelation. See, that fits perfectly with what Paul is saying in this prayer in Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives wisdom. That relates to all the, the theme throughout all of Ephesians is this new mystery or unrevealed information given to the church in this in this church age. We speak in the wisdom of God, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. It is for our our significance to make our lives successful, truly successful. Now we'll skip a couple of verses, and in 1 Corinthians 2.9, Paul begins to focus on the revelation of God. This is the source of that wisdom. It's not something mystical that God just sort of in, it speaks into your soul. It is the external revelation, recording of Scripture, and the need to study. He says, for as it is written, and this is a paraphrase of Isaiah 64.4, I has not seen, that's empiricism, 
nor ear heard. That's empiricism. That is man observing and trying to derive ultimate eternal truth from that which he observes or hears, sees, feels, etc. Nor have entered into the heart of man, the thinking of man. That's the system of rationalism. The things, and see, I've added this because all through this section you see the repetition of this Greek phrase, the things, the things, the things. In contrast to human-derived systems of thought, rationalism and empiricism, you have revelation. The things which God has prepared for those who love him, that is God's revelation. It's revealed scripture. So every time we see the things here, it's always related to the revelation of God, revealed scripture. Well, we'll just skip down to 2.12. And in 2.12 we say, it reads, Now we have received not the spirit of the world. Now remember I told you there's about 15 different meanings of the word pneuma. One of them is thinking or attitude. And so here the word pneuma is used, spirit of the world, is the thinking of the world. That isn't what we've received as believers, not the thinking of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Now, most of the time, and in most of your translations, they translate that word spirit with a capital S. And my contention for 30 years has been they haven't paid attention to the text. All the way through he, uh, 1 Corinthians, whenever Paul is talking about the Spirit of God, he either refers to it as the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God, where he uses spirit plus the genitive of God. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of God. And you can go back through this whole section. I've done it before. Spirit of God, Spirit of God, Spirit of God, Spirit of God, Spirit of God. And right in the middle of all these different phrases where it says the Spirit of God, this phrase stands out like a sore thumb because it isn't pneuma tutheu. It is pneuma ek tutheu. He throws a preposition in the middle. In fact, he adds a couple of, of uh, articles, ta pneuma ek tutheu. And that means it's the Spirit who is who comes from God. It is not the Holy Spirit. That genitive can, has that sense. But this is marking out this particular statement as something distinct. This is not the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who we came from God. This is the human spirit, which is created anew in us at the instant of regeneration. We'll understand that fully in just a minute, but that's what's going on here. We have received the whole, the, the, I mean, the, the, the spirit who is from God. This is what enables us to now understand spiritual truth. This is what Paul's describing in that, with that uh, phrase at the beginning of verse 18, having already been enlightened in our heart. This is what happens in the inner man. We receive something new at the instant of salvation. Something is born again, born anew, and that is now we have a capacity to understand the things that have been revealed by God to us. So we have the the human spirit who is from God so that we may know the things. Again, we have that phrase. This is that which is revealed in Scripture freely given to us by God, which things, that is, the Scripture, the revealed Scripture, we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. 
that is now talking about what is in uh, Ephesians 1, uh, 17, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. This is his role as our teacher, illuminating the meaning of the scripture to us, combining spiritual thoughts and spiritual words, putting scripture together as I'm doing today, putting Ephesians 1, 17, and 18 together with 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 12 to 14, and it gives us a greater understanding of the process of learning and growing in the Scripture. And then in verse 14 we read, but a natural man, terrible translation, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Now this, the Spirit of God here is, the usual way it's written, tanuma tutheu, not uh, the spirit who is from God. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Now, this word translated natural is the word sukikos in the Greek. Suke is the word for soul. It's the root of our word psychology or psychiatry. Suke, it refers to the immaterial part of man, the soul. So it's talking about the fact that there is there are humans who are just soulish. They're missing something. They're missing something that is identified down at the end as the spirit. This is the human spirit. Now let me show you why we can say that in Scripture. Jude 19 uses the same terminology, but it's not translated that way. In Jude verse 19, we read, these are the ones who cause divisions, talking about the false teachers. Worldly-minded, it doesn't say worldly-minded. Worldly in Greek is cosmos. It doesn't say anything about that. Uh, and then it says devoid of the Spirit, and they interpreted the pneuma there to be a Holy Spirit, and they capitalized it. But in the Greek... The word for worldly-minded is sukikos. It's the natural man. That is the unsaved man, the unregenerate man. And this is explained for us in a simple phrase that means not having spirit. Numa et me ekontes. Echo, ekontes means having. The me is no, not and the pneuma. So just simply, what is uh, what, uh, what does sukikos mean? It means you don't have a spirit. You don't have a human spirit. You're missing something. So, 1 Corinthians 2.14, a natural man or a soulish man does not accept the things, that is, revealed scripture, of the spirit of God. The unsaved man can't understand scripture. It's gobbledygook to him. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. And there you have the Greek word pneumatikos, referring to the human spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, in Genesis 2.17, we're told that the penalty for eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was that Adam and Eve would die. They would surely die. So what was lost? What was lost is the human spirit. Without it, they're separated from God. So what we see in the Scripture is that there are three parts of a human being. You have a human body. You have a soul that is comprised of self-consciousness. You know who you are. You have a mentality. You can think. You have a conscience. You know right from wrong. And you have volition. You can decide. In your self-consciousness, when you have a human spirit, as Adam and Eve were created with, 
then you have God consciousness. You can relate to God. You can think God's thoughts after them in your mentality. You have God's values in your conscience, and you make right decisions. But what happens when they made a wrong decision, they died spiritually, and they lost that human spirit, which enables the soul to have a relationship with God. And we call that spiritual death or separation from God. And so at the instant of regeneration, what happens is the human spirit is created and given to us. Something now is born and born again. So we go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. Titus 3.5 describes this as the washing of regeneration. Something is born, something comes into existence that wasn't there, and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 4.12 and 1 Thessalonians 5.23 each speak of distinct immaterial parts of the human as soul and spirit. Sometimes these words in other passages may be Uh, may overlap in meaning or be interchangeable, but in these two passages they are spoken of clearly as two distinct immaterial parts of man. So back to Ephesians 1.17, what this is saying is that uh, Paul is praying not for them to receive the Spirit because they already have it, but that there would be a special receptivity to the Holy Spirit's ministry in giving wisdom and revelation uh, to them. He's praying, he's not praying for them to receive the Holy Spirit. He's praying that the Holy Spirit, who has already enlightened them at regeneration, will give them the continued insight into skillful living from the revealed Word of God, the mysteries which Paul talks about throughout Ephesians. And this is in the knowledge of him. He uses a special word here for knowledge, the word epinosis, which is the idea of full knowledge or intimate knowledge. In Scripture, they use two words for knowledge, gnosis and epinosis. The outer circle, which includes the inner circle, is the word gnosis. It can describe all kinds of knowledge. But when there is a distinction in meaning... Gnosis emphasizes a more abstract or general knowledge, whereas epinosis emphasizes a more intimate knowledge, uh, a direct knowledge that leads to application. So that Paul is praying that the Spirit of God would provide increased wisdom and revelation in the area of a more in-depth knowledge of God. Now, is that how you pray? Is that what we pray for every day? This is what it's all about in terms of spiritual growth, that this should be a major element in the way we pray. And then just briefly, because I've hit it so many times, that last phrase, the eyes of our understanding being enlightened. It's a perfect passive participle, which means that the eyes of our understanding have been enlightened. That's the NET translation. Uh, Sense, or as I translate it, because the eyes of your heart have already been enlightened. So our prayer is to know God, not just to know information, not to be able to recite a systematic theology on theology proper, but to have a more intimate relationship. We have to understand the facts. We have to understand solid theology, 
but that's a means to an end. In Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord executing loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for your word, for the way in which scripture enlightens other scripture, for the way in which we can probe its depths, and each time we come to a greater appreciation of all that you've given us and all that you've provided for us, that we have the Holy Spirit who indwells us, that he fills us with your word, and that in that we see what Paul is praying for here and the way we should pray is praying that the Spirit who provides wisdom and insight and skill for living, the Spirit who reveals your word, that he leads us and helps us through our study of your word to develop a more intimate knowledge of you, a closer walk with you. Father, we pray for any that's here who's wondering what this is all about and how to be saved, and maybe they have no assurance of their salvation when they die, that they might come to understand that this is that eternal life is based simply on trusting in Christ as Savior. There's no works involved. There's no uh, morality shift. There's no bargaining with you. There's no ritual involved. It is simply trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, believing on him and accepting his work on the cross on our behalf. And we pray that those who are not saved, who might be listening to this, either here or online, that they would have a clear understanding of the gospel, that they might believe and have eternal life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.